Hello, Figgy Goddess, and welcome back to another episode of the My Figgy Life podcast. Today, we are so happy to welcome back Dr. Amelia Kelly, who joined us on this podcast a few months ago, and we had such an interesting conversation on gaslighting and specifically referenced and discussed her new book, Gaslighting Recovery for Women, The Complete Guide to Recognizing Manipulation and Achieving Freedom from Emotional Abuse. She joins us again today to talk about the very interesting topic of imposter syndrome for us as ladies and women in business. But we're going to switch it around a little bit and talk about the origin story of that. If it's from things in your upbringing, abusive past, gaslighting that led to this imposter syndrome and how it now shows up in your life. Welcome, goddess, to your sacred space. This is my Figgy Life podcast, where we openly discuss life's wins and losses on our journeys to self-discovery. This is your best life. This is your Figgy Life. And now, here is your host, Jean. So just to remind you, Dr. Kelly is an integrative, trauma-informed therapist focusing on motivation, women's issues, empowering survivors of abuse and relationship trauma, highly sensitive persons, healthy living, and adult ADHD. She is trained in EMDR, hypnotherapy, somatic therapies, internal family systems, and brain spotting. Dr. Kelly is a nationally recognized relationship expert featured on Sirius XM's doctor radio program, The Psychiatry Show, exploring the impact of gaslighting on our society. Her private practice is part of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium at the Kinsey Institute, and she is a co-author of What I Wish I Knew, Surviving and Thriving After an Abusive Relationship, and a regular contributing writer for the world's largest blog for HSPs, The Highly Sensitive Refuge. Her work has been featured in Psychology Today, Teen Vogue, Scary Mommy, Yahoo News, Well and Good, and Insider. Welcome back, Dr. Kelly. Thank you. Thank you for that. Very extensive introduction, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you deserve every moment of it, for sure. So I'm so happy that we have you for another episode and to talk about this really interesting topic of imposter syndrome. As with many things in, I think, the mental health field, it feels like we're in this moment where a lot of words or keywords in mental health have become kind of it words or code words for searching things online and, you know, those keywords that you Google to see <laughs> to see what you can read about it. And imposter syndrome is definitely one of the buzzwords. We hear about it a lot, especially for women in business. And I think it has a lot to do with societies, societal norms, and just kind of our history and backstory. But today, I really want to focus on that coming from the perspective of the way you were brought up and your abuse or gaslighting story. Because to me, it feels like imposter syndrome is difficult enough to deal with in business. But when it's coming from that kind of background... It makes the waters so much murkier. So before we get into it, can you tell us what is imposter syndrome? So imposter syndrome is a habitual way of thinking that leads you to doubt or feel extreme insecurity. Um, again, self-doubt, like I was saying, self-doubt, extreme perfectionism, and questioning whether or not the things that you've earned and the things that you've accomplished are truly 
at the hands of your own skills as opposed to just maybe luck or just happenstance. And so it's it's this phenomenon of really not giving yourself this credit where credit is due. And it can lead to really insecure moments when people are trying to compliment you or congratulate your accomplishments in general. It can also lead someone to maybe want to hide accomplishments. They may not even share with friends and family if they say receive an award or receive a promotion. It's just so difficult to internalize that you could be the reason that some of these wonderful things happen. And there are so many negative consequences of this way of thinking that can become perpetuated into you know, your ego state and your self-esteem, which I'm sure we'll touch on. Not to take away from anybody's experience, but what you're describing and the symptoms, if I may, of what you're describing, those go pretty deep psychologically. When I was preparing for this episode yesterday, I was watching one of these late night shows and there was an actress on there and they were making a joke and she was saying something in the line of, oh yeah, I had a bit of imposter syndrome there. And and they they had this whole kind of joke about it, which I'm sure she may have experienced. But that moment for me felt like that's what takes away from it because it really is it's real right it's not it's not something we read about in the newspapers and you just use it as a descriptive word for something people really honestly Mm -hmm. suffer with this and it's really Mm -hmm. challenging for them to kind of get themselves out of that space I mean if you think about anytime something is called a syndrome for instance it makes it somewhat difficult to black or white quantify but it has to be a collection of different ways of thinking or functioning or performing or underperforming. Um, the problem with having imposter syndrome is that, well, there's many issues, but when we think about achievement in particular, it can keep you from trying hard things. It can keep you from putting yourself out there and trying to um, be up to the challenge, so to speak because of the intense fear of maybe not particularly doing it perfectly or doing it the way that you think others want you to perform some sort of task, accomplishment, or goal that you have. Gosh, that's so true because literally from this week in my life, I have so many examples of what you've just said. I was just thinking this week I was appearing on a podcast and the host asked me if I wanted to be introduced as Jean or as Dr. Jean for my PhD. And my immediate response as it always is like, no, 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 no. Uh, Jean, Jean is fine. We're talking about skincare. Just forget about it. And I often refer to it as such. And I often feel really bad to even tell people why would I want to say to somebody that I have a PhD or like, what does it matter? So many other people in the world are so much smarter than I am. They have so much more to contribute. So this literally happened to me this week. Is this like a diagnosable syndrome that you have to be or can be officially diagnosed from? Or is this just something that comes along with other things that that may be the deeper cause? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I think people are very curious sometimes when they hear all these different labels, what falls into clinical diagnosis and what is perhaps more of a collection of behaviors or personality traits that affect your life. And that's where this falls. So it's not a 
billable diagnosis. It's not something that you're going to do a comprehensive clinical assessment to identify. It's more so a symptom of something else. Very commonly things like trauma, anxiety, depression, neurodiversity, Mm -hmm. which we definitely should touch on. And not to say that everyone who has these other diagnoses automatically will have imposter syndrome, but there is a lot behind why someone would start to think in this pattern of of thinking and approach their life in such a way. If I go back and I think about what has maybe led to this for me, obviously, you know, Figgy God is from listening to the the podcast. I have a history of sexual Mm -hmm. abuse, Mm -hmm. but I also had a difficult upbringing. And some of the things that I think go back into my mind is messages like, for example, I was often not just me, I was often told and I was often kind of called into a room and other people were told about this in front of me that, you know, they're so proud of me for working so hard because I'm not the smart one. I wasn't blessed Hmm. with, with smarts. So it's a good thing that I work so hard and I try so hard because it doesn't come naturally to me. And that still sticks with me, right? Like I, I will try and try and try and try and the thing that you were saying about perfectionism and how hard that kind of impacts your life, because mm-hmm. that's something that just, it's always with me. Okay, I'm not the smart one, so I need to try harder than everybody else. These are mm-hmm. kind of examples from your upbringing, you know, uh, when you go back to your abuse history, a lot of abuse comes with gaslighting. And a core part of that is completely doubting your own reality and right what you can and cannot do. So it creates such a deep set thing for you as you grow up and you move on and you find yourself in maybe an entrepreneurial space or a business space. And it's so hard to allocate self-esteem to yourself and self-confidence and that affects your self-worth. What would you say to somebody in a situation like that? How do we go about just taking the small steps of getting ourselves from that narrative to maybe just changing our viewpoint on something and, and seeing where that can possibly take us into the next step of healing? Well, one thing... And I love every single word you said is so crucial and important um, because a big part of change is understanding what you're trying to change and then how to do it. So you said self-esteem, you said self-confidence, you said narrative. Those words are big. For instance, the narrative that you hear as a young child, if you are not provided unconditional positive regard... Meaning this doesn't mean everyone gets a trophy, but this means that the people who are raising you and who are supposed to be your safe space provide a space that make you feel that you have worth and that no matter what you do, it does not make up the whole of you. For instance, there's a big difference in saying to a child, that wasn't a great choice. You know, that's you identifying that something the child did was not advisable versus you're a horrible kid or you're a bad kid or don't be a bad kid. That overgeneralization of, or let's see if maybe you can work harder in school versus you're not, you're dumb or you're not smart. These over-identifications of creating the holistic version of someone is so harmful for children because they're trying to figure out who in the world they are. It's harmful for anyone, but especially at that building stage. So what does that do? You said self-esteem and confidence. I want to make sure that your listeners understand those are not the same thing. 
Yeah, please, please draw the the difference for us. Yeah. It's it's really helpful to understand the difference. So self-esteem means that you know that you are worth being taken care of, that you are worthy of of whatever you want simply because you exist. And I don't mean in a narcissistic entitled way, but more so I deserve to be treated with respect. I deserve to be safe. I have the right to um, being taken care of. I have the right to not be verbally abused. So if the people who are setting the stage for what you expect of the world, your caretakers, whoever that may be, are telling you something different, it can completely skew this perception that you are worthy of being taken care of. And so you can see how that can translate into you are worthy of feeling pride and you are worthy of your accomplishments and you are worthy of um, trying things, failing, seeing that it's okay, brush yourself off and keep going. And that leads us into confidence. So you need the self-esteem as kind of like the foreground, the, 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 the place that gets you to confidence. Confidence, which is a big part of what happens with imposter syndrome when someone has a lower confidence. Confidence is the ability to try things even if you know you might mess up mm-hmm. and the ability to feel um, excited, motivated, able, capable to attempt. It's so cool that you're saying that because just as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, I'll never do that. If I don't know I can do it, then I won't even attempt it. Like I'd be so terrified. But you know, that actually brings up, you were saying how I, you know, there's, there's a couple things that I definitely want to make sure we touch on when we talk about the how really three categories. And one is going to be relationships and environment. So we should definitely pin that one. Another one is going to be that internal self-talk, which we can talk about parts work, which we really need to impress upon in how to work with the part of you that is the imposter syndrome part. And then the other one is working on rejection sensitivity. And there is a fabulous TED Talk. I think it's the 100 Days of Rejection. I cannot remember who who did the TED Talk, which is hilarious because I quote him all the time. Um, But I, I love this TED Talk. What the speaker did, he realized that he really struggled with rejection sensitivity, meaning fear of not doing something the right way, the, the fear of not seeming uh, perfect or accomplished, and also fearing someone either putting you down, saying no, rejecting, um, you know, turning you down, not liking your idea. All these things can feel so crippling to someone with rejection sensitivity, which leads to imposter syndrome. So what he did, I love this for 100 days, he asked the most out of this world question of people. Like he went to Krispy Kreme and asked if they would turn the the donuts into the Olympic rings. He purposely went out into the world and asked people to do things that they would say no to so that he could build up a tolerance to it and feel what it feels like to be rejected and then feel how it feels to survive it. And the neat thing was that, first of all, he realized after 100 days of doing this, I can survive this. It definitely grew his confidence. But this was the other hilarious thing that brings up how imposter syndrome can prevent you from achieving what you want. He also had people say yes. He had people start saying yes to some of his wild requests. It was amazing to him. So he realized that if he's willing to put himself out there, 
whether or not he might get rejected, he actually was getting some really good feedback at times. I think they did make the Olympic rings for him. I want to listen to that TED Talk. We should link it in the episode for the Absolutely. listeners below. Mm -hmm. I love how you broke it down in the relationships environment, the internal self-talk. I want to talk to you about the parts work. That sounds really interesting. And then this rejection sensitivity, because it really does keep you, I think, from achieving so many things. And what I will say is because I try so hard and because I'm such a perfectionist, if I were to step outside of myself and look at myself from the outside, where I've come from and what I've done and where I am now, I think maybe to somebody else that is not me would perhaps be, okay, wow, you did that. But to me, that's impossible to see because for me, it just means I haven't tried enough. I haven't done enough I have to go further and I think that comes back to your internal talk like what you're telling yourself internally I'm so interested to understand what did you mean when you say internal self-talk and parts work because there's just the part of you that has the imposter syndrome so it's like kind of slicing out that that piece or how does that work? Well, taken from theories by Richard Swartz on the internal family systems, looking at us as a collection of parts as opposed to just one unified self. That's the understanding that that's the basis of this. We are, if you look at it this way, the self energy is like the living room. Okay. It's like the, this beautiful meditation space, for instance, where you just feel at ease. It's serene. And this is where you feel the most compassionate towards yourself, open, curious, creative, like it's just like a good place to be. So what happens is when you are being overwhelmed by another part, so for this conversation, the um, kind of like the critical self-talk part, we'll, we'll say like the self-criticizer. If the self-criticizer is flooding your system and just doing way too much of the work, they often have something to say. They often need something, that part of you. So one thing to do is get curious. Notice the part. When that part comes up, maybe imagine sitting in the living room. This is a mental picture, of course, although, hey, you could go get gestalt about it and go get an empty chair and do it if you want. But Sit with that part and ask, you know, what is it you need right now? What are you trying to achieve? And then contemplate what would it be like to allow that part to work a little less hard? It can be really overwhelming and scary to imagine completely getting rid of the perfectionist or the self-criticizer because in a way they've kept you safe. They kept you safe in your childhood They have brought you many accomplishments, whether or not you allow yourself to enjoy them. And maybe they have prevented you from some negative things happening. So we're not vilifying any parts. We're not saying that they need to eradicate from the whole system. But what we're saying is that they don't need to work so hard all the time. So that's one really helpful thing, noticing hey, this interaction with this particular person or going into this particular meeting really kicked up that imposter syndrome for me. I wonder what my critical part needs right now. So that's a kind of IFS, more compassionate approach. Another approach, and this is a little <laughs> bit more like, I don't know, it depends on your personality and your internal style. Um, you might just need to pick another part that thinks that, am I allowed to swear on here at all? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, you might just want to pick a part of you that thinks that the imposter syndrome part is bullshit. Okay. okay. And, and, 
And in, and just talk to that part when it shows up, like, hey, chill out. What are you doing here? Like, so you're not trying to get rid of the part, but you're trying to rationalize and maybe even fact check with the part. So <clears throat> it's very important to feel the separation. That's the big thing. I hate to say it. You're not going to eliminate imposter syndrome. I know that might not be exactly what you want to hear. I'm so grateful you said that. <laughs> like, I, I love that you said that because sometimes I feel for somebody like me who's been on a mental health journey for a large part of my life, a lot of my dance in recovery is because of my personality type and then having advice of, okay, you can fix this. And it sets, for somebody like me, it sets unrealistic expectations of myself because every time I don't fix it, I feel like, oh, I've messed up somewhere again. I've done something wrong. I missed the mark somewhere. And when you were saying now that you can sit with that part and you can ask this part, okay, what do you want? Or maybe go for a more aggressive approach. That is so key for me because obviously I still struggle with it. But I feel like I've been doing better with it since I've recognized that it's not a destination for me. Like you said, it's not something that you're going to get rid of. but I am able to some to mostly catch myself in difficult situations where I can say, okay, hey, I recognize you're here. I'll give you a seat at the table. You can sit down, but you're not allowed to have opinions. You can be here and you can be in this space. And when I feel it's necessary, I will call upon you. It doesn't always work, of course, but it was a much better approach to me than thinking, okay, I have to work to get rid of this and I have to work to fix it because... Sometimes it's just not, in my view, fixable. It's just something you have to learn to invite into the space and recognize when it needs to be recognized. The difficult part of imposter syndrome for me is where it leads almost into, I would say, limiting beliefs because my problem is I feel like I don't deserve. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to have this. I don't deserve to charge this for something. Or And I think that's why I was stuck in in my narrative of human rights and the impact that had on my emotional well-being as well for such a long time because I felt like I was here to give and to give and to give and to give. I, I wasn't deserving of getting. And that comes up for me a lot in business because it affects the way you negotiate. It affects the way you put your value to something, mm -hmm. what you charge, the time you invest. Yeah, no, that's an amazing way to portray how the messages that you receive as a child, whether or not, and mind you, we're saying child, this can also be a byproduct of being in an abusive relationship in your adulthood, of course. So, but with regard to what you were saying about your childhood, if you're given the message that the only way that you are worthy is if you work your tail off, of course, you're going to have that inner narrative in those interactions. But the fact that you recognize it and the fact that you can come to the table, so to speak, like you were saying, and say, okay, so well, here's a couple different cognitive restructures I do with clients who have similar thinking patterns. What are cognitive restructures? Sorry, can you Thank explain you. what okay. is Thank you. Okay. Dash, this is what they are. Uh, essentially, it's just taking away that you're thinking it's a cognitive behavioral therapy technique where you're just taking a message that you have that's not helpful and just reframing it, just changing it to something that is more um, helpful and brings you towards what you want. 
So if you restructure the way that you think, I don't deserve this. I sometimes will ask clients, what's the opposite? You know, what is what would be the opposite version of that thinking pattern? So if you normally think, I don't deserve this, then you flip the script to, I do deserve this. So if you have, even if you're not believing it internally in that moment, how would you act if you felt you deserved it? Mm. Right? Interesting. So. So it's kind of like, okay, I, I have a person I'm going to work with. I'm going to charge them this amount. They give me a hard time saying that's not, you know, I can't afford that or I don't know why it's that charge. And you can say to yourself, I deserve this, and then make the choice to follow actions with that. Um, another thing, you know how you were saying the different scripts that you have related to uh, whether or not you're worthy? Um, you know, you need to give, give, give. That's very common for people who grew up in abusive homes or adverse homes or who grew up with an adult, uh, you know, as an adult child of an alcoholic, something along those lines, very common thinking patterns. Sometimes I'll ask my client to take a second and ask themselves, well, if you don't deserve this, do I? Does your friend? Does this other person, you know, kind of oh, wow. <laughs> pulling that dialogue outside yourself? Because would you really be saying the same things about another, about your f- best friend, for instance? And that's where self-compassion, that inner dialogue is, is very important. And I think that's what creates this confusion in your mind, right? Because my immediate reaction is never, I would never say that to somebody, but I would also never want somebody to feel that. And then you're immediately back into that space, but okay, but for some reason with me, it's okay. <laughs> for some reason, I do. Well, what you is know? the reason? You, you you said you kind of know the reason. What's the reason? The reason is that it goes back to that, like you're not deserving. You're, you don't deserve to have this. You don't deserve to have nice things. If other people aren't happy, then you can't be happy first. That whole narrative. And Absolutely. where it gets even more intense for me is whenever you add a little pinch of conflict to the mix Mm. that just completely throws me off Mm -hmm. course because Mm -hmm. now you're already again like in a business negotiation if it goes tough right and you have to negotiate a price of something or how something will be delivered you're already in this imposter syndrome feeling do I deserve to charge this do I deserve to do that conflict arises and in your mind it's like oh you see there's the proof you don't deserve mm. it. You shouldn't mm-hmm. be doing it this way. Not everybody mm-hmm. would be wired that way. Many people would just say, but this is the nature of negotiation. Of course, people are going to push back. Of course, there's going to be this to and fro. That's that's what we're trying to achieve. But your mind goes back into, aha, see, you weren't believing right. me. Now I'm going to show you. I wish your listeners could have just seen your facial expression when you did <laughs> the two different versions. Because if you if you think about it, you literally went from this kind of very almost playful, childlike facial expression when you were saying, I don't deserve this. This is not something that I am worthy of. And then when you went into your negotiating adult face of, well, yes, I do. Like, your whole expression <laughs> like I changed. completely changed. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that's the thing. Sometimes diffusing or separating out mm. and not allowing the narrative to completely overwhelm what you do. So 
What you were just saying about conflict, I think is an important thing to think about. When you're in a conflict, we're going to feel more unstable, insecure, potentially not as grounded. And that's a very similar feeling to how one might have felt when they were being abused or when they were being mm. degraded, you know, 100%. Mentally. Yeah. Exactly. So if you're feeling that similar sensation, it's going to be hard to stand within your strength and say, I deserve this. Mm. So in those moments, uh, I think about uh, Amy Cuddy's power posing. Have you ever heard of that? Yes, I have. Yes. And it's and to be fair, it was debunked a little bit in research. So I'm not saying it, it does exactly what they originally claimed. However, there's something to it, like holding a power pose, maybe like holding your shoulders back, um, even standing like Superwoman for a couple minutes before going into a meeting, before even entering, making sure you're feeling and standing within your grounded strength before you're in that interaction. You're entering with already having run your energy. You're projecting yeah. that. You already, I, uh, for me, I can definitely see how that can make a difference and how you show up mm. in that situation or in that space. The other thing that you mentioned was the rejection sensitivity. I just had a wonderful weekend away with my husband. We don't do it enough, <laughs> but, but <laughs> we had a babysitter. Can you believe that? <laughs> and nice. we were away. <laughs> and we do this thing where every Sunday we just check in with each other and we're like, okay, what went well for you this week? What didn't? And it's like a judgment-free space. And one thing he told me was he can never really tell me if something went bad for him this week or if something I did upset him because I take it so deeply and so personally it's torture for him to see how badly I chastise myself for this thing and how I immediately go into this drive okay I have to fix it I have to work on myself harder I have to it's almost better for him to not say anything and and hope it sorted out some other way and I think that goes back to a lot with rejection right again it's that voice that comes to you okay you're in a safe space you deserve it everything is okay oh no <laughs> I'm going to show you the opposite here comes this very well-meaning we live and cohabit together out of a respectful space something that you do that I don't like and your mind takes it as I have completely failed I have to completely redo everything I do and rethink everything I do so how do you even start to get into that? And I hope our listeners can see at this point, like it all leads into the same thing. It's like this vicious circle. It keeps on going and growing and right. going. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the things to consider is that what kind of narratives, not just you're not worthy, you need to work harder, but what kind of narratives also support imposter syndrome? And some of those being that sharing your feelings is not healthy or that it's not good to be vulnerable or that you need to just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and keep going. You know, if you, if you're not taught to ask for help, if you're not taught to be imperfect, if you're not taught that it's okay to fail forward and have that growth mindset that when we make mistakes, it's okay because it's growth. If you're not given those examples, it can make situations like someone just expressing an opinion um, that much more difficult. And so if you're, you were saying it's a judgment-free zone with him during those interactions. 
So that's an excellent space to repair that and to practice. And so if you're in that interaction with him, reminding yourself that he is a safe person for you to do this with, and you almost ask to like, bring it on, like pile it on more, like give me, and not that you're really going to say this to him, but maybe (laughs) mentally, you know, because what we resist persists. So if you're just like, oh gosh, I don't want them to say anything versus, okay, I'm open, I'm receiving. I'm going to hear what they will say. And remember, every suggestion I make today is super hard. I recognize that. And I recognize that you might say some of these things, but not even feel it right away because it takes practice. How I grew up was if you apologized, there was never a counter apology. It was like a blanket open space for you to be really then criticized. See? I knew you knew you were wrong and this is how wrong you were and this is how bad what you did was or whatever the situation was. So you had two options, either always be perfect so that you are never in a situation to apologize or when you have to apologize, just apologize and accept that it's just going to be so much worse than not apologizing and it stays with you because you don't think about it every day, obviously, but your mind goes back to those moments when you're confronted with these everyday situations. Yes. And it actually makes me think of a recommendation that Dr. Becky from Good Inside, that book, she just did an amazing TED Talk, that I, I heard this recommendation and I thought, uh-oh, I've been doing this parenting thing and I need to correct this. And I loved this. And it was, if your child comes to you and apologizes, just accept the apology. Don't use that as a teachable moment. Oh my goodness. That blew my mind. And she, she did say, and I've tried to practice this, come back to it later. So if they come to apologize, you just accept the apology It doesn't need to be a moment to say, thank you for apologizing, but you know, you really need to not do A, B, and C. Mm. That is so hard. Oh my gosh. Like, you know what, as you're saying this, I'm like, oh, that's another thing on my checklist. I have to do better. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, I, I heard it and I thought, oh my goodness, I have definitely not been doing this. I need to work on this. (laughs) And I'm sure that goes for our partners too. I mean, how many times with our romantic partners do they come to apologize and they really mean it? Like you can tell they really mean it. And we use it as an open invitation to open fire again. That Mm -hmm. is so true. It's so interesting. I love this conversation about imposter syndrome and how it affects because the tentacles stretch so far in your life. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And obviously there isn't like a quick fix that we can give the listeners in 30 minutes. But let's just take a practical example and maybe you can tell us what you would say you do in that situation and we can go from there. Let's take a business situation. You're going into this meeting. You have to set a price point for something. It's a tough negotiation. You're going to have to say no to some things that you perhaps disagree with. And you go into this feeling, I don't know if I deserve to be here. Am I smart enough to do this? Am I charging too little or too much? What do I do if this becomes a conflict situation? Should I just extract myself and ask somebody else to step in? How do you prepare yourself for that meeting? And how do you come down from it after? Okay. Oh, that's a, that's a good second question. So I think if, if I were that person and I had that many different messages running through my head, just the way that I am, I might sit down and write out 
what my goals are for the meeting. Like, this is how much I want to charge. This is what my services are. This is how I'm going to say this. And the reason I say that is because you already know what you want to say. And if you have a clear message in front of you, or at least you can practice this internally, it allows the part of you. So let's say you have like the businesswoman part of you who knows exactly what her worth is and who knows what she wants to ask for. It allows that part to come to the table and you can invite the imposter. You can invite the critical part to step with you up to the table. Cause remember, we're not going to get rid of her, but it's okay for her to watch, say, watch this. And you walk into the meeting as the business part with your plan set in stone first and foremost. And then with dialectical behavioral therapy, this form of therapy that helps um, individuals regulate their emotions and increase interpersonal effectiveness, there's this concept of the broken record. You say your statement and you reiterate it. You reiterate it. You do not have to justify a no. Also, I just want to like blow that from like a giant blowhorn. You do not have to justify no. No is a full sentence. And so if you are saying no to something in, say, a business deal, it's not your responsibility to explain yourself. If you choose to and you want to, if you enthusiastically want to explain yourself, if you feel warm energy in your heart and you feel that power posture, and you want to, to back up your no, by all means, go for it. But if you feel yourself folding in and you feel a kind of a, a, a cavern in your heart center, that's probably you speaking from the imposter part. And again, invite the imposter part, sit over there. You're fine. I got this. So you're not trying to change your mind. Remember, you're not trying to, you're not trying to change the script. The script is there. We're just trying to turn the script down. And just being comfortable with having the imposter syndrome in the room with you. Like you're not trying to cut it out or like, because that just leads you to a whole different place. But I love what you said about sitting down and deciding what you want from this meeting, making a list and what is your yeses and your noes. Because if you're wired my way, then you love lists and lists (laughs) make you feel safe and it makes you feel prepared and it makes you, it gives you confidence because it feels like your mind is structured and you know where you're going. How do you come down from it afterwards? So I would definitely recommend whatever your preferred method for calming your nervous system is first, as soon as you can, triage as soon as you can. So For me, that's a warm bath. For some people, you know, maybe exercise, chanting, music, walk with the dog, laugh with a friend, um, you know, watch a silly movie, like whatever helps you separate from the body a little bit and just calm the nervous system. And by separate, I don't mean dissociate. Let me just reiterate that. I mean, not become so internally wound. Um, You know, yoga is a, is a, an excellent example. Now you also might be feeling really spent. So the thought of going to exercise or do yoga might be too much. And so that's why I was saying things like a bath. Some people might need a nap (laughs) after something like that. Um, So I think helping your nervous system calm down after your nervous system is calmed down, check back in. Those narratives might not be so strong when your nervous system has gotten back to baseline. If you still have narratives playing, that's when you sit down with that part at the table, so to speak, 
what do you need to tell me? What, what, what really scared you about that meeting? What insecurities are you having? Can also be done through journaling. You know, this doesn't just have to be a mental conversation, but listen to yourself, listen to the insecurities, reminding you also to fact check, like looking at the facts. You know, so often we we have these ideas of how something's going to go or um, a preconceived notion about how another person felt. And I sometimes will ask my clients, so what am I thinking right now? And they say, I don't know. And I'm like, well, then how do you know what that person was thinking? <laughs> but I, I understand it's a hard, all of this, when something is hardwired, it is so difficult to reframe this. Yeah, it's really like it's really like almost re removing a virus from your computer software. <laughs> but you've called an IT center and you don't speak the same language. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. All of those things are actionable things that you can truly try. And I mean, if you're on my journey and you understand the journey, you understand that these things really can help you. It's all about how you look at it and how you choose to incorporate it. I think the favorite, my favorite thing of what you said today mm. was the parts, recognizing that you're all made of mm -hmm. all different parts and one part doesn't necessarily define you. You can set that away. That was something I'm definitely going to carry with me today. Thank you so much oh, you're for being on the My Figgy Life podcast and it's always so nice to have you back thank you for listening to the my figgy life podcast please consider subscribing to be notified of new episodes